Good morning. Good morning. We have come now to our fifth and final week of this short sermon series on Acts, on the book of Acts, Dispatches from the Apostolic Church. And um, as, as most of you know by now, we've been trying to capture some vignettes of this, this um, record of the apostles and see what it might mean for us today in our lives as a church community. We're doing this because in many ways we are sailing into uncharted waters. Now certainly this could be an immediate concern with lawsuits and property issues, but even, even beyond that, this is an increasingly unfamiliar culture to us, at least in our recent history. And Acts provides us some insight into who we are and who we might be and who we might become as a church. And so as you recall, we've discussed a range of topics from our mission as a church to uh, what it might be to be a persecuted church to how the church might engage the culture. And now today we're going to take a look at what is Acts trying to tell us about the church today? How might we continue what we see is begun here in the book of Acts? And the reason we want to do this is because the book of Acts is not only a history of the earliest church, but it's also an invitation. Luke wants to invite his readers to continue the work that the apostles have begun, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, I strongly encourage you to open them up or get your app on your phone. Um, We're in Acts chapter 28, verses 11 to 31. We'd love it if you followed along. And we're going to take a look at what this final verses of the final chapter in the book of Acts might have to say to us today. And the first thing we need to recognize is is the setting, both the geographical setting, but also the literary setting. How does this setting function within the book of Acts as as a work of literature? Um, And so geographically, we see that Paul has made it to Rome. Rome is the capital city of the Roman Empire, the center of culture and business and thought. And Paul is here, and he is proclaiming the gospel. He's made it. This is the intersection of all the highways in the empire. All all the highways are either going to Rome or from Rome, and Paul is in the middle of it. And then in the book of Acts, we see that this is, um, in many ways, the fulfillment of Jesus' commissioning of his apostles way back in chapter 1. Do you remember that? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will bring the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Rome is the jumping off point for the ends of the earth. This is the beginning of the gospel spreading to every corner of the globe. From Rome, the gospel will go everywhere. Paul, for his part, has long desired to visit Rome. We see this in his letter to the Romans. He's writing to a church he didn't found to people he doesn't know. And he says, I long to visit you and to share in fellowship with you. And he asks them and inquires, perhaps if I come and spend some time to you, perhaps you as a community will send me off to Spain and I can preach the gospel there. And here, in the last chapter of Acts, Paul has finally arrived, the fulfillment of many of his own desires to reach these Roman Christians. 
And so we begin now at the end in verses 30 to 31 and see how does Acts end. Well, we have Paul, and he lived there for two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It's a fitting climax to the book of Acts. Paul in his house, under house arrest, preaching freely to everyone. But it's not a very good climax to Paul's life. It leaves a lot of questions unanswered, doesn't it? Luke leaves out a bit. He leaves a lot to be desired. This is probably not Paul's final visit to Rome. He makes it to Rome. He's under house arrest for a few years. And we have every reason to believe that he was freed. And he, he perhaps even made it all the way to Spain. Now, it's likely that eventually he was arrested again and brought back to Rome. And there he was martyred. And Luke probably knew about this. And we're reading Luke's gospel and we're saying, come on, Luke, there's so much you haven't told us. Did Paul make it to Spain? What did they do with the gospel? How did he get arrested again? Did he die? How did he die in Rome? But Luke's not telling that story, is he? He's not telling the story of Paul or the story of Peter or the story of the apostles. Luke is telling the story of the church. He's telling our story. And this is a fitting ending because by leaving Paul in Rome, proclaiming the kingdom and teaching the true king in the heart of the world's false kingdom, Luke is inviting us to consider how we might do the same. How might we declare Jesus to a world that either refuses to recognize him or does not even know that it needs him? I want to look at three characteristics briefly of this time in Rome that can inform us today. And the first one is this, Paul is drawing strength from community. There's incredible support for Paul as he lands in Italy. We see this beginning, say, uh, middle of uh, that first section, uh, verse 14 and 15. He journeys to Rome and he's escorted in almost like a king who is returning home. He arrives in Puteoli there in verse 14, and he's invited to stay by the Christians there for seven days. And the Christians from all over the region come out to greet him. And as they journey north to Rome, they're met outside the city, first at the form of Appius and then at the three taverns. And they're greeted by Christians, and there's men and women lining the roads to see Paul welcoming into Rome. Perhaps there's some pomp and circumstance, and yet all the while is contrasted with the fact that Paul is chained to a Roman centurion. This is a prisoner under arrest, not a king returning to his home. What is the effect of all this community on the imprisoned apostle? We see it at the end of verse 15. On seeing them, Paul thanked God, and he took courage. And such is the nature of the church, that as Christians, we would so encourage one another that we would well up inside of each other a desire to give thanks to God, that we would well up inside our hearts a courage to proclaim the gospel. That is the call as Christians, that we would give thanks, that we would encourage, that we would have courage, that we would be a community that brings that into the hearts of its members. There's strength in community for Paul. 
Second thing we see as Paul gets into Rome is he has a winsome and dogged focus on proclaiming Jesus. He's winsome. It means he's um, engaging. He's appealing. People want to hear what he has to say, but he's dogged. He is relentless. He has one focus, and that is to tell the world about Jesus. So what happens? He gets to Rome. He gets settled in for three days. He's under house arrest, meaning he's, he's probably or he's certainly in chains and perhaps even physically chained to a person who would rotate every few hours. Um, but, but he's in chains at home. And after three days, he invites the Jewish leaders to share the good news with them. Now, I'll tell you what. I can't speak for you, but if it was me... And if I had appealed to Caesar, and if I was in Rome thinking I was unjustly imprisoned, if I was chained and under house arrest, my first thing would not be to hang out for three days and to invite the Jewish leaders over to hear the gospel. I'd be marching down to the courthouse. Get me out of these chains. But not Paul. Not Paul, because at the forefront of Paul's mind is winning his fellow Jews for Christ. And so he calls them in, and he has great concern for them. And he gives them a little history there, verses, verses 17 and 19. He says, when I was in Jerusalem, I was delivered as a prisoner by the Jews there. I, they wanted to, to hand down the death penalty. These Jewish leaders wanted me dead. And when the Romans tried to release me, they objected. They would not let them release me. Nevertheless, Paul tells them, I have nothing against these people. I have nothing against their customs because they're my people. These are my people. And so I bring no charge against them. Instead of being angry or frustrated or vengeful, Paul desires nothing more than their salvation. And so he calls the Jewish leaders, and then in verse 20, he tells them why. For this reason, I've asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. I am in chains because I've seen the Messiah. I've given up everything to tell you about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These gathered leaders respond there in verse 21. It's an amazing response, actually. They said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with, every re- for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. You see what's happening? Paul's here, he's under arrest, and the, the folks in Rome who would have the ability to make a charge against them have received no letter from Judea telling them how evil Paul is. Nobody from Jerusalem that's visited Rome has warned them about this guy, Paul, who's coming as a prisoner, and they actually kind of like the guy. Now, they've heard some things about his sect, about this Christianity, and they want to hear more because it's spoken against everywhere, but they're willing to listen. Because of who Paul is. They like him. They want to hear his message. Now, it's interesting. I don't know the ins and outs of Roman law. But again, it would seem that Paul has a case to be freed, right? 
Look, nobody in this city is going to bring any charge against me. Let me go. But he doesn't. He decides instead to tell these Jewish leaders who respect him, I guess, who who are interested in him, who don't hold anything against him, he resolves, instead of using that for his freedom, to proceed to tell them the very same things that got him thrown in prison in the first place. He's inviting them to make another charge against him. But he has a dogged focus on proclaiming the gospel because he desires their salvation. How does that look for us in a world where our sect is increasingly spoken against? Can we have the same winsome and dogged focus? Can we be winsome in a way that other people want to hear what we have to say? And I'm not talking about love your enemies. Sometimes it's easy to be winsome with our enemies because they're so abstract and so far removed from us. But can you be winsome with your neighbor who puts signs in his yard that you don't agree with? Can you be winsome with your relative who sits across from you at Thanksgiving or Christmas, who who just messes everything up and you have such contempt for them? Can you be winsome in a way that they want to hear what you have to say? Do we have compassion and concern for those with whom we disagree or perhaps have even committed injustice against us? Do we actively desire that they know Jesus? And at the same time, can we be dogged in our proclamation of the gospel? Is it possible that we might have to be willing to give up something we're owed, something we're due, whether it's retribution or justice or even an apology or perhaps even rights? Are we willing to give that up maybe? so that somebody else might know Jesus? Are we dogged in our pursuit of spreading the gospel? Finally, we see that Paul trusted in the sovereignty of God. So having earned a hearing before this audience, Paul proclaims his message. He tells them about Jesus, but he treats their response as something that belongs solely to the Lord. And so we see that um, they agree upon a dime and a place, uh, verse 23, to to, to hear what Paul has to say. And he meets with them from morning till evening. He expounds the gospel. He testifies to the kingdom. He tries to convince them using the law and the prophets. He tells them about the Messiah. And the results, yeah, they're mixed. Yeah, it's okay. Some like it. Others don't. There's disagreement, but it's a mixed result. It's this great climax, right, of Paul preaching the gospel, and then we're like, nah, what happened? It's a terrible story, Luke, right? Like, come on, certainly this is a big, you know, he's in Rome. He's in the center of the world. Surely there would be a a gospel explosion once Paul arrives. I mean, look at Acts chapter 2. Peter gets up. He's got the Holy Spirit. He proclaims the gospel, and what happens? 3,000 people are converted. In one afternoon, Paul expounds from morning till evening. Ah, Some are convinced. It's not an encouraging response, but Paul will not be deterred. 
Why? Because he trusts in the sovereignty of God. He looks back on his life and where the gospel has been and where he's been and what he's been through. And he he remembers riots. He remembers theological enemies. He remembers stonings, shipwrecks, snake bites, all of these things. And yet the gospel persevered. He knows that this news about Jesus Christ will not be constrained. God in his sovereignty knew that many would not receive this message. Even Paul knows it, but he proclaims it anyway. And when they reject it, he says, I knew you were going to reject it. It says here in Scripture, let me quote you, Isaiah chapter 6, they told me that you were going to reject the gospel. But he does it anyway. There was a missionary in Africa once, um, way back, probably 30s or 40s, I can't remember exactly when, and, and he resolved to leave the, 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 the hospital compounds where they were doing mercy work and to go into the bush to tell them about Jesus. And he remembers going and meeting with one tribe and, and teaching them about Jesus and proclaiming the gospel to them, and, and they sat and they eagerly listened, and he can tell, you know, when you're, when you're speaking with somebody that they're soaking it all in, and he's feeling good about this, and the, the elders say, okay... We're going to go and and convene, and we're going to make a decision for our tribe, because that's how decisions were made. The the tribe made the decision. The elders made the decision for the tribe. And this missionary said, okay. And they go, and they convene, and they debate it, and they come back, and the missionary is eager to hear the news, and they say, thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing your message. We're not going to accept it. And the missionary was dumbfounded. So you're not going to accept it? They said, No. He's thinking, like, nobody's coming back here for a long time. Is there not one or two people who are interested in this? But he had to let it go because he was there to proclaim. And it's God that stirs the hearts that it might be received. He had to leave the message in God's hands. Paul had to leave his message in the hands of God And that's got to be the challenge to us as a church. Can we trust our message? Can we trust our ministry? Can we trust the reception of our ministries and our message into the hands of a sovereign God, into the hands of Christ who is seated and ruling at his right hand? Because we've got to believe that no matter what comes, no matter what we face, the good news of Jesus Christ will not be constrained. It will not be constrained by injustice, will not be constrained by persecution. Even death itself will not stop the spread of the gospel. Certainly not lawsuits or a loss of property can stop the message of God. Are we willing to proclaim that message knowing that it might fall on deaf ears, and closed hearts, that our mission, like the Church of Acts, is to bring the good news of Jesus to our neighbors, near and far, regardless of whether they will hear us or not. Friends, we have been called to a peculiar vocation, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. We've got to find strength with each other to do that. We have to be encouraged in this community. We have to thank God for what He's done for us. And then we've got to ask ourselves, am I being winsome or am I just being annoying? 
Am I winning people over by grace for the gospel? And yet am I dogged in my proclamation? Am I resolute that others would know Christ no matter what? And that's only possible when we trust in the sovereignty of God. Because the message of Christ will go forth. God's word will not return to him empty. And the gospel will be proclaimed in Jerusalem, in Somerville, in Judea, in Charleston, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Let us pray.